Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another live episode of The Compliance Guy. I'm Sean Weiss. And as always, I want to say thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my special guests for a little while as we get to talk about healthcare. We get to talk about all things compliance, uh, insurance carrier related. And as my uh, special guest is holding up a, it looks like a coaster um from his time on the president's council um many of you may recognize dr stephen solway i think we got it doc uh many of you may recognize dr stephen solway he was on the program uh several months back i think it was episode 22 uh his episode was one of the more uh popular episodes uh simply because he really is the man the myth the legend. Um, so I'm excited to welcome Dr. Solway back. Uh, today is Thursday, October 27th in the great year of 2022. And the reason why I've asked Dr. Solway to come back onto the podcast is because I will be joining him tonight in New York City for his book signing. And there's so much for us to unpack about this book signing. And it's it's just going to be a ton of fun so with that said my good friend it is great to see you again thank you for being back on the program thanks for carving out time from seeing patients to hang out with me and to educate our listeners a little bit more on why you really are the man the myth the legend possibly the most interesting man on earth i'm honored to be here your introduction uh, cannot be beat. I, I'm your friend. You make me feel at home, and and I, I like my patients to feel at home, and um, I'm learning from you how to make people feel at home. It's wonderful. So um, we 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 have done some behavior modification training over the last several months. It it's it's it seems it seems to have paid off a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm an un, I'm an unfiltered soul who sees wrong and says what he sees. And um, you know, that's not always politically correct. Although we don't live in a politically correct world as much as they want us to be politically correct. Political correctness is gonna destroy further destroy the country. I mean it's it's chipping away at it pretty good. And 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 it's interesting and, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know some of the things that are being done for political expediency over doing what's right for people regardless of what side of the aisle you sit on whether you're on the right the left the middle wherever you sit it, 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 we're all at the end of the day human beings we all deserve to be treated in a humane way and we we all have a right to expect civility 
from our fellow persons. But I want to I want to start off by talking about your first book just briefly. So your very first book that you put out, um, I, I believe it was what a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. Um, uh, yeah, about October of 2020. It was when it's, it yeah. first got released. You know, if you don't mind, I, I want to just add yeah. something here, which I find Please. very apropos to both the book and what you're saying. Talk about decency and talk about practice of medicine. Yesterday, I saw a patient. The patient was um, 40 years old and very hardworking, eager person. Just help me get better. I'll do whatever you say. Okay, fine. So my assistant, Denise, wrote the order for the medication and said to the patient, go down to the pharmacy. It should be ready you know, later today. The patient went directly to the pharmacy just to be told, oh, I'm sorry, that requires a pre-authorization and your doctor is going to have to write a letter to the carrier or the pharmacy benefit manager as to why you need the drug. Well, my response was, well, no, I'm not doing that. I already wrote a prescription. That's my letter indicating I want that drug. So why do I need to write the same thing twice when it's pretty clear that if I signed the prescription and I said I want the patient to get uh, bubble gum, then they should receive the bubble gum and they are insured. So, you know, how, how is this debate even coming up? So I just wanted to share that example from yesterday and it blends into my book, which that book was called Bad Medicine. Well, how much worse can it get when you go to the doctor, he gives you advice and you're not allowed to take the advice because someone else who probably learned how to tie their shoes last Thursday is making the decision as to what you can get and explain a process how your doctor can write a letter on top of a prescription to try to get the medicine that they actually need, but you're in a battle with their boss because that guy's trying to save money so they don't have to release the medicine. And as they scurry through their Google and look for a less expensive version Okay, there you go. So the first book, Bad Medicine, was kind of like the book House of God for the first half of it. It was literally my right. experience in um, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, first two years of medical school in the Caribbean and everything I saw. Next two years in London with all clinical um, acumen and bedside diagnosis and so on and so forth and everything that I witnessed. Um, uh, the same goes for my internal medicine training, my rheumatology training, my time in the VA system, and my first handful of years in private practice. And, you know, we're, we're a really very smart, brilliant country with brilliant scientists, and we're on the cutting edge of every technology there is, except it almost reminds me of a football game where the guy who owns the team, who's the billionaire, He's got 20 millionaires out there playing and entertaining him. But, but the, real, the real shtick is that those 50,000 people who are drunk, they're paying his salary so he could pay them and he can keep the leftovers. And, and medicine is really not far from that at this point. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's been an interesting run. You know, in, in the 28 years that I've, had the honor and privilege to advocate on behalf of providers such as yourself, health systems, 
hospital networks, suppliers, uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, it's it's been very interesting to watch the slide, as I call it, into a dark abyss that has put patients unjustly in the middle of a dispute between a physician who is charged with the responsibility of caring for that individual, helping to restore them to a level of optimal functioning, removing barriers, treating the symptoms, treating the signs, and finding a way to take people who are, and I'm going to use rheumatology because you're a rheumatologist, taking taking patients who for all intents and purposes have lost hope are, for lack of a better term, in, in many ways incapacitated because of the inflammation to their joints, their musculoskeletal system, their tissues, dealing with inflammatory diseases, um, you know, MS, whatever it may be. And then, you know, doctors doing and fighting the good fight on behalf of these patients only to run into MBAs or business, if you will, I'm using quotations, business people who are making and dictating how care should be distributed to people who are paying their benefits. And and, and I'll I'll stop with this last comment. I got my, um, my pay sheet, right, for my two weeks yesterday. Um, and it was so funny because I was like, I've got to bring this up on the program with Doc. I got my pay sheet yesterday and I was looking at it and it said insurance premium, 800 and I think it was 897. Okay. And I sent it in the email back to my comptroller and I said, am I reading this correctly that I'm paying $897 per month as a single for coverage, and I won't use the insurance company's name because I, I don't like to disparage anybody. And she sent it back and she said, yes, you are. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I'm paying $897 a month in a premium just for myself with a $5,000 deductible, a max out of pocket of $7,500 annually, and I can't get them to pay for any of the medically necessary services. True story. I could not get my Dexalant that I take. Could not get my Dexalant that I take. Now, the, 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 the insurance company said, sure, you're more than welcome to go ahead and get it, but it's $400 a month. And then I found a coupon and I was able to get it down to $125 a month. And then just by chance, Doc and I were talking and Doc said, I'll, t- I'll make sure you're okay. And down the road, a, a few weeks came a package with a year supply of Dexalant. But it shouldn't be that way because my gastroenterologists, my primary care doctors who have been treating me for GERD, I've had upper endoscopies, you know, twice a year. I've had to have throat stretching. I've had to have all of these things done. I've been on every type of antacid that is out there. I've taken everything. 
some of the medications were actually causing me to have stomach polyps, which is precancerous if you don't treat them. Yet my insurance company said, we don't believe you going on to Dexlamp is medically necessary. I said, I'm not going on it. I've been on it for three years. Why now all of a sudden do you not want to pay it? And their answer was, it's not on our formulary anymore. How is this equitable healthcare? They want to talk about equality in healthcare. The other problem that we run into is we have people who live in rural areas of this country, white, Hispanic, black, Asian, whatever, who are living in rural areas who cannot get access to high-speed internet services so that they can do telehealth visits with their providers. How is this equality in healthcare? It's a, it's a joke. It's not. It, it has become a punchline. It has become a politically sexy term to use, and I hate using that word sexy, but that's, that's really what it is. It's an appealing term when people on either side of the aisle come out and say, we're going to ensure equality in healthcare. How can you ensure equality in healthcare when we have a massive population that doesn't even have access to the internet to be able to get telehealth services? The um, the politicians never let an opportunity by to create a problem. And uh, COVID was an example where you weren't allowed out of your house. You had to start with this uh, telehealth. And all of a sudden, it's the be-all and end-all. And before telehealth came along, um, somebody must own stock in the CAT scan company because CAT scans took the place of the physical exam. And, you know, back to this terrible tragedy with Dexalant, here's a drug it's FDA approved, okay? Here's a drug that somebody prescribed you for some reason. Whatever the reason is, some doctor decided you needed Dexalant. That's the end of the story. That doctor, if he's a real doctor, should not have to justify anything about why he's prescribing Dexalant to a patient. So whatever the reason is, if a doctor signed a prescription, no, he should not have to go through an appeal process. He should not have to write a letter to justify why he wrote a prescription because, in fact, by signing that prescription, that was his letter of affirmation that this patient of mine needs that drug. And I don't need to explain it to you because, frankly, that's a HIPAA violation. His health problem or, your, you know, the reason why somebody picks one drug over another, um, it's absurd. Um, so, so absurd. So absurd. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into <clears throat> the reason the, the 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 real reason why we're doing our podcast today, um, because tonight I'm joining you in New York City for your book signing of your second uh, 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 your second published book, which I'm so excited about, and it's called Medical Politics. And, you know, I, I, I told you and I told others on my very fir first podcast that you joined me on that I had actually cited uh, uh, sections of your bad medicine book in some of my letters back to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I've quoted some of your stuff in some of my civil and or criminal trials that I've engaged in um, administrative law judge hearings. So. You know, it, it was really funny that before you and I ever even knew each other, I knew you because I knew your book. So 
you wrote a book. It was a successful book. I don't think it rose to the level of your expectations because I don't think anything ever really does rise to what we hold ourselves to as an expectation for ourselves, right? I mean, you could have sold a million books and you would have said, why didn't I sell two million? You know, and, 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 and I guess, again, that's just human nature. But this book is really, I think, a timely book because our political landscape in 2022, coming into the midterm elections just over a week from now, really about a week and a half from now, on November 8th, some of the most hotly contested battles are happening in your border states, New York, Pennsylvania. I mean, really interesting to see what's going on. But you opted to write a second book, and it's called Medical Politics. Let me stop here and ask you why you wanted to write this book and how you came up with the medical politics topic. The first book was a success within the realm of the baseline knowledge, knowing that a random author that writes a book usually gets maybe a hundred copies sold. And while I did not have an aspiration, say, to become a New York Times bestseller, it's always in the back of your mind because, you know, the guy who's in Little League, he figures if he's going to go to the majors, he should probably go to the Hall of Fame. But, you know, even the book writing system is so corrupt that if you want to be a New York Times bestseller, you merely need to know somebody who's got a super PAC who can buy enough of your books prior to release. And if you hit 5,000, you got a bestseller. Now, if you're a guy like me, it took two years to sell 5,000 books. That to me is extraordinary. Here I am in this isolated rural town of South Jersey. Um, you know, I'm surrounded by 25 rheumatologists. However, the perimeter of that 25 rheumatologists is probably 100 miles and it reaches into Delaware and Pennsylvania and it goes up as far as Trenton and it goes down to the ocean on the east and the south and you say wait a minute there's a guy practicing in the middle of all this who nobody knows and he's got 3,000 YouTube followers 2,000 out of the United States and he wrote a book on bad medicine nobody knows anything about the book and it it sells 5,000 copies so I said, gosh, the book talked about all these things. It resonated home with a lot of people, got a lot of feedback on the social media that, hey, you know, you should have talked about this. You should have talked about this. So I started to listen to all the things I should have talked about. And I said, gosh, you know, there's enough stuff here, enough, enough material to write another book. So the first one was fun. And frankly, after 30 years of seeing patients day in and day out, I was looking for like a little bit of a diversion. Um, and I thought, you know, what, a, what, what kind of a diversion would be better than writing a book that actually teaches doctors and empowers patients? So the first book has a chapter called uh, Rheumatology for Dummies. And in that chapter, I talk about uh, gout, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and lupus. I think there may be a little bit more, but those are the those are the highlights. And that chapter covers enough information for not only it covers enough information for any doctor and any patient of those conditions or family member of a patient with those conditions 
so that they understand more than their doctor has taught them or told them because it goes into the finer details and it takes out all the minutia and scientific formulas and whatnot. So it's written practical. So the second book, I said, okay, I'm going to not only do a rheumatology for dummy chapter, but I'm going to expand on it. I'm going to put the really complicated problems that a lot of people have and don't like to talk about. Myositis, vasculitis, scleroderma, Sjogren's syndrome, uh, well, common ones, osteoporosis and fibromyalgia. So those are covered on a patient and doctor level simultaneously in the new book. And there's a chapter on medical orthopedics. I like to, um, I, I like people to understand that uh, at least the way I was trained by a world famous rheumatologist, uh, Ralph Schumacher. Um, Ralph was very big into synovial fluid, uh, which is the fluid that comes out of the joint, or I'm sorry, is you know processed in the joint. And you know his area of research from 1963 until his death, and you know five years ago, was to analyze fluid and to determine the type of arthritis somebody had by looking at the fluid and so on. So with this type of inquisitiveness thrown into me, uh, I feel like I was trained in the inquisitiveness and the looking at the joints and our training encompassed needling all the joints. And while the general population feels that needling all the joints belongs to say orthopedics or in the case of carpal tunnel, plastic surgery or something like this, um, a, a guy who's trained like me, who's eager like me, uh, has to explain to the public in layman's terms and to family doctors and GPs and hospitalists and so on, <clears throat> all the things, um, carpal tunnel, trigger finger. By the way, I have a patent. I, I actually have several patents, U.S. and international patents on needles, how to inject. I've seen them when I was in your office. Yeah. Well. You know, there's a reason that my success is higher. And because I have more success and more volume, I get more audits. What, is a, what does an audit do? It agitates me. Well, when I'm agitated, I say, well, why would I take that insurance? They like to audit me. You know, well, what's the end game? They basically, they want you to pay your copay. They want, they want to audit me and take away the money, but they want the money. So it can't be distributed evenly. It has to be you have to pay $5,000 out of pocket max. I need to work for free so that the people up at the headquarters, those people can fly in a private jet. Um, it's, it's, so anyway, this is what the book kind of talks about. It's, it's everything I just summarized plus some. Yeah. You know, I, I, so I've gotten a chance to read the manuscript. Um, I was I was fortunate. I, I was sent an advanced copy of it and I read through it. And for me, you know, when when I think about how the book is structured and why it's structured the way that it is, and we talk, you know, you talk about medical politics. You're right. We're talking about the the power that is wielded by the big insurance corporations and the fact that everything trickles down from there you know insurance companies are not in business for paying claims for sick people that's correct they're in the business to make money they're in the business to turn a profit 
to satisfy the shareholders at their meetings, to ensure that they have proper distributions of profits quarterly, annually, whatever it may be. Now, I I am a believer in the free capital markets, okay? Um, and, and I believe everybody has a right to make a profit, but my belief in profitability ends when it infringes on the inherent rights of an individual. If I, as a member of an insurance plan, have agreed to pay a set premium each month for coverage of pre-existing conditions that I have or conditions that I may develop as I get older. And to know that I have peace of mind that I will be able to go to a physician of my choosing. I will pay my annual deductible. I will pay my co-payments. And in return, the risk share portion that the insurance company is responsible for will be paid to my provider. Now, look, there's no doubt that there are some bad actors. You find them in every single industry. But in healthcare, and I, I, I can say this because I've been doing this now for 28 years, it is less than 3% of the entire physician population who are bad actors that create havoc and chaos and noise for 97% of those providers who are out there who just want to see patients heal, optimize their level of health, and you know recognize their doctors for the great work that he or she performed. I mean, listen, medicine is not an exact science. It's an art. There's a reason why they call it the practice of medicine, okay? And when you start running into insurance companies playing doctor, where they are coming out and they're saying, we have denied the service or we're refusing to pay for a service or to pre-authorize the service because we don't believe that it's medically appropriate, necessary, or reasonable. We've got a huge problem, Houston. Because last time I checked, insurance companies don't get to decide who, when, and what type of care a patient receives if it goes against the generally accepted standards of medical practice and those determined by a patient's treating physician. So I know I threw a whole lot out there, but I mean, to me, that's where I, I looked at your, your book and I said, here's the intersection of the practice of medicine, the business of medicine, and then the politics of healthcare. Is that a fair summation? You put a lot out there, and uh, I want to address a few things that you mentioned. So the bottom line of the insurance company, that, that's one issue. How is it that the, um, the CEO of a major pharmaceutical company gets um, you know, a go-away package for $150 million, and anybody in that seat gets the same package? So shouldn't the... Um, um, 
whoever regulates the stock exchange. Uh, and again, I'm just losing my, I don't know the, the SEC. Name. Okay, yeah, yeah. Why doesn't the SEC uh, do some sort of a policy that says for a, um, for a CEO of a publicly traded company to walk away with over 50 or 100 or $200 million, you need to be in the position for seven years. You can't be in it seven months because if every seven months somebody's walking out with $100 million, the balance sheet can't add up and nobody can get treated because there's only so high you can raise the prices before before Bill Gates can't buy his medicine either. And meanwhile, every time they rotate the, this position, there's a uh, severance package of an astronomical amount of money, a couple of airplanes, limos, bodyguards, whatever comes with these positions. Okay, now not to jump all over the place, but you mentioned one of the last things that you mentioned was about receiving the medications and you know what what they should decide, what they shouldn't decide. People need to realize that because this is an art and not a science, and because the squeaky wheel gets the oil, and because the more common diseases are subject to clinical trials, that means that many rare diseases which let's say are rare to the family doctor and are rare to somebody not in my specialty, but maybe common in my office, those drugs don't have any drugs, I'm sorry, those conditions or diseases don't have a drug or a treatment that is FDA approved, does not equate to, we don't have a standard of care. And within the standard of care, there's variation. And I like to say that a common disease can present to you as a doctor in a common or a rare fashion. A rare disease can present in what would be common for an expert in that disease or in a rare fashion. So knowing that you have these moving parts, day one, the patient comes in, they're sick. You need to act immediately to save their life. Now, if they're in the hospital, the bill is paid almost automatically unless they deny the admission, which is crazy as well, because then you're questioning the judgment of who admitted the patient and why. And again, they are the doctor. But if they come to the office and I decide, you know, geez, this person needs a thousand milligrams of steroids to live. Well, I have to do it. Well, gee, you know, that's not indicated. Well, actually, it is the standard of care. Well, the standard of care, according to who? Well, 35 years ago when I started training, we were doing it then and it worked. So it still works now. And you might say, well, gosh, you know, that guy who came in with shortness of breath with relapsing polychondritis or this or that. And you first you say, what's relapsing polychondritis? I never heard of that. Well, don't worry about it. That's my specialty because you don't have to have heard about it. Just like I've never heard of uh, pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, which is a rare lung disease. I don't need to know anything about that except the fact that I know it exists. So in my field, a rare disease comes in and I do what is, quote, correct in my eyes. No, there's no FDA approved treatment. So you can't deny anything. As long as I'm making logical sense and helping the person, that's got to be the art of medicine at the finest, because we shouldn't even be relying on, you know, here, a, a professor once told me at Boston University, this guy was very, very world famous. I don't even mind saying his name, J. Thomas Lamont. This guy was, um, I mean, this guy was the, um, the, be 
he, he was the Ralph Schumacher of GI back in the 80s. He wrote all the textbooks and so on. And he once said to me on rounds, he asked me to look something up and I grabbed a book. He started scolding me. He said, are you kidding? If you're reading from the textbook, you're out of date. You need to go look up the most recent articles that were written last month. And that resonated. And I followed that up until now. And I still do. And, you know, a lot of stuff that's written in the New England Journal as a brand new article, that's not going to hit the main mainstream book, mainstream book or media for perhaps two or three years. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. That doesn't mean you shouldn't use it. However, the insurance company will say, well, gosh, you know, that new drug, it's experimental. Well, no, not if the data in the New England Journal shows that on 10,000 people it worked. How is that experimental? Why are they writing it if it's experimental? It just hasn't reached the textbook yet. And the, the lobby or the um, petitioner for the company that makes that drug didn't yet negotiate a rate with the company that's got to pay the bill. And therefore, it just doesn't count. So wait a minute, you're telling me there's a cure for what I have, but I'm not allowed to have it because it's only been around for a week. Now, yeah. just look, look back when COVID started and, and people were getting monoclonal antibodies. Uh, I don't know how long they tested the drugs for. Probably not very long because COVID was new. Yet they gave it right. to the president of the United States. Well, if they really thought there was a risk, they probably would not have given it to him. So why wasn't that? Well, made, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, depend, it depends on what uh, type of doctor it was that day. But um, yeah. But the whole point is, is that we have all kinds of stuff that work for all kinds of things. And if somebody, somebody simply, simply doesn't like the pricing, then they ban it from their formulary. And what I've done in my office was I, I'm fighting back. I'm saying, you know, you know, you want me to use drug X, but I don't stock drug X. I stock drug Y because it's been around longer and I'm comfortable with it. And if you have a problem paying for that drug, then I'll match the price of what you want to pay for the for the generic drug. Now, what's your excuse to deny the drug when I know it's the right drug? So I, I want to start to sue these people for practicing medicine without a license. And honestly, I got that idea from you. And I believe that that's where it has to go, because there are people that have no knowledge of anything that are making decisions simply based on a balance sheet and, you know, a cash flow analysis and, you know, uh, something else you mentioned, because I want to try to hit a lot of the things you mentioned. You mentioned sure. that your you mentioned your healthcare premium is X amount of dollars. Okay. Well, what's funny? I just paid my healthcare premium, and I realized that my healthcare premium went up twelve percent. And I looked back and I noticed, gee, it goes up like eight or twelve percent every year. How come my rates don't go up twelve percent every year? In fact, Medicare's cut my rates by uh, some percent, either a half a percent or two percent every year for 17 years while my uh my own uh, payment has gone up 12 percent. so right the insurance company sends out a renewal letter and if you don't renew you're uninsured why aren't the doctors sending out a renewal letter to the insurance company saying if you don't increase my reimbursement by 12 percent, i can't see your patients anymore well i want to i want to talk about medical necessity for a minute okay but I want to talk about it from a regulatory standpoint. And for me, 
I always like to start, you know, some folks like to start at the end and work their way backwards. <clears throat> I like to start at the beginning and work my way forward. So if you look at the first section of the Medicare statute, it's called the prohibition. And in the prohibition, it states that nothing in this title shall be construed to authorize any federal officer or employee to exercise any supervision or control over the practice of medicine or the manner in which medical services are provided. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Doc, but from this, one can conclude that the beneficiary's physician should decide what services are medically necessary for the beneficiary and a substantial line of authority should be created in Medicare that that speaks to the treating physician's opinion is entitled to special weight and should be binding on the Secretary of Health and Human Services when it's not contradicted by substantial evidence. So I like to start there with, with the prohibition. And I'll just recite it one last time. Nothing in this title shall be construed to authorize any federal officer or employee to exercise any supervision or control over the practice of medicine or the manner in which medical services are provided. Thoughts? Very well stated, and it opens up the door for a great answer. In the Medicare system, what you just stated is a facade of the truth. You are allowed to do anything you want. However, if you do it proficient, that's when the bounty hunters come knocking on your door. And then they retroactively take back everything you've done, even if it were correct, because you, by being a top 10% worker, and you should be getting a pat on the back for doing a lot of work and keeping people out of the hospital, you're now deemed a criminal and you're audited to death to either retirement or whatever horrific things happen. Now, in the non-Medicare system, in the private system, everything that you read is ignored completely and the opposite is done. That is correct. So let me, let me share with you. So I, I want to share with you what is referred to as the, a legal doctrine. So you're a scientist, right? And as a scientist, you use evidence-based clinical standards to make your decisions. So I want to share with you a legal doctrine by which evidence-based clinical standards are used to determine whether a treatment or procedure is reasonable, necessary, and appropriate. Okay. Now, this is Medicare's view of medical necessity that I'm talking about here. And it says, quote, medical necessity is defined under Title 18 of the Social Security Act. Section 1862A1A, and it says, notwithstanding any other provision of this title, no payment may be made under Part A or B for any expenses incurred for items or service, which except for items and services described in the succeeding paragraph are not reasonable and necessary for the diagnosis or treatment of illness, injury, or to improve the functioning of a malformed body member. I mean, that is a... That is a legal doctrine by which evidence-based clinical standards are used to determine whether a treatment or procedure is reasonable, necessary, and appropriate. But Hold if on. you take it one step, go ahead, go ahead, please. 
you use the you just use the word they are used they're not used that's the problem everything you stated was 100% true it makes sense but it's not used so so you made a comment about you know taking on the insurance companies and let's be honest that's not realistic for the typical one to three doctor or five doctor, you know, five doctor practice, right? The the costs of litigating are just beyond what is reasonable. But if you think about this, because there are cases, there is case law, there, there are precedents that have been set. Specifically, in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, it was cited in the Kaminsky case, and it required the payers to define medical necessity and the the definition of medical necessity and i think this is one of the arguments that you and i have recently used to and and i want to talk about that that email to um the president of an insurance company and what happened we're not going to mention names but i want to talk about it so here's what it says unless the contrary is specified the term Medical necessity must refer to what is medically necessary for a particular patient and hence entails an individual assessment rather than a general determination of what works in the ordinary case. I mean, that's rheumatology. That's hitting the nail on the head for rheumatology because we can't look at patients in a vacuum. We have to look at patients individually because not, not, all patients are going to have similar inflammatory diseases. They're not going to respond the same way. Some will respond better to, you know, Arencia, or they'll respond better to Remicade, or they'll respond better to a different medication. So for a, an insurance company to come out and say, no, we don't want to pay for that because of whatever the reason is, we, we want you to use this because this is what's used in general cases. There's already precedent that has been set by the Kaminsky case under the Second Circuit Court of Appeals that says, ah, uh-uh, for something to be medically necessary, it has to entail an individual assessment rather than a general determination of what works in the ordinary case. I mean, what do you think about that? You're right. The, 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 the decision is right. The way you stated it is right. and in rheumatology, even if you were to take a common disease such as lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, I might be the only one in the room that would know everybody has lupus because no two of them look alike. So how can you cookie cut and pigeonhole treatment for a room of people that have a heterogeneous disease with a homogeneous treatment? How is that possible? It's just impossible. Um, I guess Einstein would call it insanity, but that's not possible. You're right. You're right. You know, the last part that I want to talk about with medical necessity, and, and, and I want to get your thoughts on this, because when I've written letters on your behalf and on behalf of your patients, um, I always start off by talking about generally accepted standards of medical practice. And, 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 and it's defined as standards that are based on credible, 
scientific evidence published in peer-reviewed medical literature generally recognized by the relevant medical community or otherwise consistent with the standards set forth in policy issues involving clinical judgment. I mean, there's the, to me, there's the two most important words, clinical judgment. Yeah. An MBA can't make clinical judgment. Sean no. Weiss, you know, regulatory compliance officer, can't make a clinical judgment. Stephen Soloway, MD, FACP, with 20 other, you know, credentials behind his name, is the only person in the room who's qualified to make a clinical judgment. And that takes me to this, this other topic. <coughs> Excuse me. Peer reviews. Peer reviews, and, and I, I do want to say this. I get a lot of very interesting emails from Dr. Solway. A lot of very interesting ones um, that typically start off with him getting ready to jump off a cliff and me having to throw a lasso around him and pull him back just a little bit. And, and they usually, they're, they're very, they're very, they make for great reading. That's all I'm going to say. Well, the, um, book, the book will show 50 of my letters <laughs> and it'll show your forward. It'll, you know what? Our team works great because we it get does. done. We, we succeed. We have not met a hurdle yet where I haven't come out like a pit bull. You've reeled me back in put it into kinder terms and the job gets done. Now, my letter is a wake up to whoever it's meant to wake up. That person looks at my letter and says, I either need a bodyguard or I need a security agent or I need to call a psychiatrist after this guy, but he's awake. <laughs> and then when you hit him with a finesse, he's like, oh, now that I read this other letter, this other guy's not so crazy, and you know he's only trying it's to. It's kind save of a good life. cop, bad cop. Yes, yeah. yeah. You know, and that and that raises that raises one of the most recent issues that we had with an insurance company. And and, and as I said, I'm not here to shame anybody. Yeah, they you, do a you good know, enough the, job themselves. The company doesn't matter because it's the same with all the companies. It is, and that's what I, and that and that was my point. So. I started off a letter to the president and CEO of the insurance company for one of Dr. Solway's patients with saying, one of your beneficiaries is close to death because your minions, I don't think I use the word minions, but no. the individuals processing or making decisions based on finance rather than on what is clinically sound medicine for a patient is resulting in a rapid deterioration of this patient's condition and they will be dead within a matter of days if you do not intervene. And I said, I know that this is not the way that I normally start a letter off to you, but I had to ensure I had your attention. Within what, Doc? Two hours, we had a full internal investigation at the insurance company. And on the same day, we had a full approval for the medications that this poor woman was without for how long? Weeks? It was, I think, bordering on six weeks. 
Yeah, because she had an adult onset of SIDS, right? Uh, adult onset Stills disease. Still, which, not SIDS, which, still. Which I was forced to use too much steroid, which, I mean, we have treatments for adult onset Stills disease, and they work. And all we wanted to do is get this woman the drug. And if she took 60 milligrams of prednisone daily, she had every side effect in the world, and it was just horrible. If I wean the drug to, say, 40 or 30 milligrams, she's still in the steroid side effect horrible range, but her disease was flaring. The fevers, the lymph nodes, the joints, completely disabled, the, the lungs. the I mean, every organ in her body, she, she was going to die. I mean, I referred to an article actually from the 1970s written by a colleague at the time or a mentor at the yep. time, Antonio Reginato, who wrote an article on many cases of Stills disease and how they can die of liver failure and so on and so forth. And I mean, this would have been the classic patient. Somebody who's uncontrolled is going to die from an organ that's failing. And, um, you know, we went from six weeks of letters, you know, from paper pushers saying no to all of a sudden the CEO investigation and the patient getting the drug all within the same day. And it, it and shouldn't it never have to be that had- way. No, it never should have had to be that way. But, you know, this is just one of dozens in the last month to yeah, two yeah. months of cases that, you know, we've had to take on. And, you know, for me, I enjoy it because, as I said, for 20, 28 years, I've been a physician advocate. I've been a patient advocate. And I believe that, you know, we need to get back to putting patient care ahead of profits. And I know that doesn't always sound exciting to businesses like insurance companies, but at some point you got to do the right thing because one day it's going to be you, your spouse, your child, or another family member who you deeply care about, who's going to be seeking the care of a physician like Dr. Solway. And you're going to want him or her to pull out every stop possible to save that that loved one uh that loved one's life or to restore them to a level of functionality that they had prior to whatever the onset of the current disease is and you can't be a hypocrite and want to give care just to your family but withhold it from everybody else who's paying your salary and those of the people at your insurance company well, the, to, the last thing that I want to talk about, because I know I know you hate doing peer reviews, you refuse to do them, but I've shared with you the reason why we have to do them is because if we get a provider who is not a rheumatologist, who doesn't understand rheumatology, and they have a position, you as the cerebral thinker, the clinical genius in the room, with regard and respect to rheumatology can educate that internal medicine doctor or that family practitioner. But we also have a right to request a board certified rheumatologist to engage. But the problem is there's so few rheumatologists out there that we're not going to get one. So, you know, while, while sometimes you feel that doing a peer review is a waste of time, my position is, Hey, Let's educate them and let's refute and, and rebut their clinical determinations 
even though it's a waste of your time, we're still advocating for the patient. Thoughts? A couple of peer-to-peer -peer reviews with uh, retired pediatrician, gynecologist, ER doc, whoever. Um, I would make the point as to, you know, I've been in practice for 20 or 30 years and uh, I saw the patient and they have this, this, and this. And based on the following, I, I've come up to this conclusion and this is the treatment. So usually what they say to me is, well, I'm looking at the, uh, you know, the, the PubMed version or the crypt crib notes version of that disease and that doesn't make sense or that's not what's here and of course that's very agitating because you know i'm saying well you know i i'm the one who has been practicing rheumatology 30 years and i'm the one who has seen you know all the different varieties of the cases and i'm the one who can tell you for a fact that no you don't need a positive blood test to make a diagnosis any more than you do or don't need a fever and how something such as a low-grade fever is meaningless information, except maybe it tells you the patient's not lying. And having a high fever doesn't mean you have cancer any more than you have an infection or you have a rheumatic disease. But the people who've got these rheumatic diseases, whether it's a gout attack that cripples you and you can't get out of bed, or whether it's uh, lupus with a pulmonary hemorrhage, or whether it's um, a relapsing polychondritis whose heart valves and lungs are just being destroyed, Whatever it is that we're treating, or even if it's a shoulder pain in a person who can't carry their suitcase to work, um, why does there have to be, uh, and I feel like I am picked on because I am more pro prolific than, than the rest. You know, this is off topic, but when I was a rheumatology fellow at the VA and I was uh, one of the MCP fellows and there were four or five University of Pennsylvania fellows, the attendings would um, say, you know, everyone has to see six patients. Even back then, I was seeing 16 patients. So this is a workaholic gene in a guy who was trying to see more, asking the attendings questions about everything, every solitary bit of information, because I knew the minute the fellowship was over, I'd have nobody to ask questions, you know, so I want to learn it all right. then. And... Um, um, it, it just seems that when you do these peer-to-peer -peer reviews, they have a predetermined answer that they're going to deny it. And then they tell you, you can go to the next level of appeal. And of course, I start back by saying, well, wait a minute, we haven't had a peer-to-peer -peer because now that I've learned this is not a medical peer-to-peer, -peer, I should be dealing with the CEO because this is now a financial peer-to-peer. -peer. You're telling me I can't use right. the drug because it's too expensive. So let me talk to the money guy at your company and let's figure out a money way to work it out because they don't care about medicine at all. The patient doesn't right. matter at all. Yep. All right. So the last thing that I want to talk about in our time together today, and, and I want to ask a sincere question. So you, you alluded to something about the new book called Medical Politics, and I'm going to put a link into the description for where people can get it. But you asked me to write the foreword of this book, and I never asked you why. There's nobody better suited to write <laughs> the foreword. No, seriously, I'm, I'm not joking. Listen, I, I've been around this for 35 years. Um, I graduated medical school 35 years ago. And in all my years, I can tell you who is the most um, inquisitive person. I can tell you that. 
who is the most intelligent scientist? I can tell you that. Who is the most um, um, who is the most practical physician? Who is it that understands how to connect the practical physician with the really inquisitive scientist? Okay. Well, if somebody were to say to me, who, who knows the most about the playing field of medical politics, it's Sean Weiss. Thank you so much for that. So yesterday, it, it's on true. Wednesday, it, it, it is yeah. true because, you know, even right. yesterday, I believe, I don't know if you saw them yet, I wrote you two emails yesterday about two other patients who were being hosed over. And way back when, when we first became friends, I called you and I, I said, Sean, you know, I don't work Fridays anymore because I have to write letters. I'm, I'm not being productive. You know, yep. I, write let, I write prolific letters that are inflammatory and they get the attention and they, they win, but it, it's, it's a pain in the butt because I have to work. And after learning about you, it's like, you know what? You're you're a more refined politician version of me. I, I could never be a politician. I'd curse everyone out when I walked in the room. I couldn't do it because I, I do. I wear my, my emotions on my sleeve. I don't even know, you know, I mean, I do know how to be politically correct. I do. And there's <clears> times and places yeah. for everything. However, you can express my anger in a tamped down way while it would take me an extra hour to re-edit my own letter three times. And so you, I mean, look, if, if I'm trying to say, if you said to me, hey, Dr. Soloway, are you saying that I fill your shoes to write your letters on your behalf? Yeah, and you're the only person I know that can do it. And that oh, goes back to, again. I appreciate that. I appreciate those kind words. So yesterday on the Daily Dose episode, um, I read the foreword of your new book, uh, Medical Politics. And I talked a little bit about uh, how it kind of came around, uh, you know, for me to do it. And uh, I've gotten some really incredible feedback. Uh, of course, you know, there's been some feedback from folks who are like, man, you really politicize that. Well, the book is called Medical Politics. And I went after both sides equally in my foreword. And it's not that I took a position based on an opinion. I took a position based on facts, based on actual statistics based on those individuals who were called out in my foreword who openly admitted the failures on their behalf. So it was my opportunity to bring to as many people who are willing to read the, the, the foreword of the book an understanding of what does not get released in the mainstream media, whether it's CNN, Fox, MSNBC, or any of them, to really understand what's going on in healthcare, you have to live, breathe, eat, and sleep in this landscape. So tonight, Dr. Solway has a book signing. 
at 7 p.m. Uh, five 7 to seven. I, I think it's five to seven. Five to seven. That's right. Five to seven p.m. tonight at Trump Tower in Manhattan. Uh, there is going to be a all-star cast of uh, the Who's Who, including Pete Hegseth from Fox News, who is the MC for the evening. Um, always admired him for his years of service to our country. Uh, really admire his um, level-headed approach to delivering the facts of what's going on. Uh, Lindsey Graham will be there, uh, and Mike Crispy will be there. And my understanding is that there may be a few other individuals with some pretty powerful names who will be there, but we will have to wait and see. And I don't want to give away too much about what's going to transpire uh tonight at trump tower between five and seven but i can tell you this i am excited to get to give my friend a hug i haven't seen him in a few months uh and to get to watch him shine in his moment of uh signing uh, uh copies of his latest book medical politics uh dr stephen solway the man the myth the legend the babe ruth of rheumatology thank you so much for carving out the time that you spent with me today and my audience to talk about your new book to talk about what's going on in the world of rheumatology and in medicine in general and helping to bring a level of sanity to an insane industry well said i uh, really hope that I can help um, people because all of us actually are patients. I, you know, it, it helps people that will be a patient one day understand the um, the weather and the terrain and how to navigate through any weather and any terrain. And with the right wording or the right person to speak to, and and that's the sad thing. You shouldn't have to have the right wording or anything. You should just go to the doctor, get diagnosed and treated. But, you know, as we've been discussing for an hour, that that just isn't how it is anymore. And um, so I'm, I'm hoping to, to both solidify and um, weld together um, the world of what's going on, what should be going on, what was going on, and why it's broken, how it can work, and why it has to work. And at the same time, educate the regular people on common topics that they may encounter as they pertain to my field. Um, it, it's very sad to see that good doctors, really good doctors, are retiring because they just don't want to deal with it they yep. are they are just quitting and you cannot this isn't a football game you cannot take uh, the scabs and expect them to know as much you just can't do it because they don't have the experience yep all right great way to finish out this segment all right, y'all, 
we will be off on Friday, the 28th of October, as I will be in New York City, uh, as I said, uh, and we will be back on Monday, the 31st of October, which is Halloween, uh, with our Coding and Compliance Roundtable. We have some fun stuff planned for our viewers. We have some incredible topics, some incredible guests. As always, thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with me just for a little while. And until tomorrow, remember, be good to yourself. But more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.